Do you remember when the Enterprise hit that quantum filament and I was in command on the bridge? I do. Well, when that happened, I was overwhelmed. But then when it was over, I realized that a part of me missed it. Not the actual disaster, but the experience of being in command. I felt like I was exploring a whole new side of myself. I started to feel like I wanted to stretch myself a little. I really would like to stretch myself a little. We'll start tomorrow morning. Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and officer in charge of radishes. Mm. And I'm Elizabeth, lunar schooner and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are very pleased to be doing our first patron-chosen topic. We want to thank Wellington for their suggestion today, which is accidental leadership. A big thank you to them and to all our listeners and supporters. If you'd like to become a patron, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions in the future. We're going to start with TNG's fifth season episode called Disaster, written by Ron Jarvis and Philip A. Scorza, and directed by Gabriel Beaumont. It first aired in 1991. The crew of the Enterprise are enjoying some downtime, sort of. Beverly is pressuring Geordi into performing as Major General in another one of her directorial exploits. Jean-Luc is escorting a trio of snot-nosed science fair winners about the ship, and Worf is trying his best not to eat the decorations during Keiko O'Brien's baby shower in 10 Forward. The ship suddenly encounters a quantum filament, which kills the on-duty command crew on the bridge and paralyzes the ship from stem to stern. Many vital ship systems are offline, including communications, leaving Counselor, I mean Lieutenant Commander Deanna Troy, in command of the Enterprise in this critical situation. She finds herself not only in a situation totally outside her depth, but with subordinates Ensign Rowe and Chief O'Brien significantly at odds about how to proceed. We could have a containment breach in a matter of minutes. What do you suggest? We should separate the saucer now and put as much distance as possible between us and the drive section. Excuse me, sir, but that's damned cold-blooded. What about the people down there? There's no evidence that anyone is still alive in the drive section. No evidence they're dead either. If you were trapped down there, would you like us to cut you loose and just leave? No, of course not. But I also wouldn't expect the bridge crew to risk the safety of the ship and hundreds of lives in a futile effort to rescue me. But Troy believes, guided by her empathic senses, that there are people alive in engineering who could save the whole ship if given the chance, and so orders O'Brien to divert power there in hopes of success. However, she does prepare the ship for separation to hedge their bets. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew find themselves with a series of small but deadly problems to contend with in their unusual contexts. The trauma of the impact has caused Keiko to go into early labor. With Riker and Data off to try and reach main engineering, it falls to Lieutenant Peopleperson Worf to deliver the baby. I'm going into labor. You cannot. This is not a good time, Keiko. It's not open for debate. Pressure and the Forge find themselves with a ticking clock in the cargo bay as a radiation fire ignites, threatening not only their lives, but the entire ship. 
They're forced to vent the bay of atmosphere to clear the fire and then repressurize it before they suffocate. Because of the genius design of the Enterprise, the pressurize and depressurize buttons are on opposite sides of the room. <laughs> Picard has broken his leg and has to keep the children in his care safe and on task. With little experience to draw upon, Picard drafts the children into a makeshift mini-crew, giving them the pips from his collar and assigning them tasks to exit the turbolift safely. Eventually, he connects to the kids with a climbing song from his childhood, which proves effective at quelling their fear in the face of the danger. On their way to engineering, Data and Riker encounter impassable terrain of sorts, and so Riker severs Data's head. Don't ask. <laughs> Luckily, they arrive in engineering in time to receive the power uplink from the bridge and stabilize the containment field. Thus, Troy's first turn at command ends in an unlikely but harrowing success. The ship is repaired, Picard finds himself a little less shy around children, O'Brien gets to meet his daughter Molly, thanks to Worf, and Geordi got a crash course in breath control for his debut in Pirates of Penzance. So, we're obviously in person again. Um, what? <laughs> no popcorn again. I think... <laughs> Are you real? Are you really here? No, this is this this is the this is the holodeck simulation. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, that this makes is, sense. Yeah, this is this is your fantasy. This is this is where you want to be. Great. Um, we talked about normally only doing live shows um, for movies and that sort of thing, but we had a nice extended uh, time together yeah. uh, in this place that we are, this undisclosed location, and so we figured we may as well. Um, this is kind of a special episode, like we said, because it's our first listener submitted uh, topic. So. Fair. I think it justifies yeah, it uh, works. the special context. Yeah. So um, let's let's get into it. Uh, I want to focus on Troy most of all, but uh, I'd love your thoughts on the other um, kind of odd situations that our characters are in in this episode. Yeah. Well, I've, I do love it when all the different subplots all relate to the main theme. Right. And I definitely see that happening here because everyone is doing something that they're not an expert at. You know, Worf is delivering a baby and trying to have a human, decent bedside manner. He's like, stop going into labor. Good. Good. You bore that well. <laughs> so Klingon. Um, you know, Jordy is being asked to sing in a musical. Right. You know. Which is funny because LeVar Burton is great at that sort of thing. I know. They have to pretend I know. Like they have to yeah. pretend like they're not. I am the very model of a modern major general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. No, I, I can't. Picard has to interact with children, his uh-huh. favorite activity. His nemeses. His yeah. nemeses. Why don't they answer? I don't know. They're all dead. They're not dead. We're going to die too. We most certainly are not. Now listen to me. No one here is going to die. So I want you all to stop crying. <laughs> Yeah, and Data and Riker. You want me to take off your head? Yes, sir. Yeah, Data loses his head? Yeah, well, that's that's no big deal for Data. I think in that case, it's actually more Riker um, having not to be the one who puts himself in the danger. He has Mm. to let someone else take the fall, as it were. I think that's uncomfortable for him. Yeah. And he expresses that to Data. He's like, I I wouldn't ask anyone to do this. And Data's like, you don't really have a choice. It's not a huge 
part of the plot, but I think it's that, that that's his test. Everyone is kind of being asked to do something that they're not super skilled at. You know, it's like, hey, we're asking you to draw upon your, you know, secondary, if that, set mm. of skills. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is not what you're trained to do. This is not what you're an expert at. But you have to do it. So in Picard's case in particular, I like the kind of little mini arc he goes through. So his first instinct is just like with Wesley. It's like, I don't know what to do with kids. I'm really good at commanding people, though, so I'm just going to draft you and put you... You're going to be little mini Starfleet officers and have orders and a chain of command and all that. And it's cute. Then I shall appoint you my executive officer in charge of radishes. Uh, Eventually, that runs out of juice, right? Because they get in the turbo lift and it it falls and they're climbing and they're scared. Yeah. And giving orders to these kids is not going to keep them safe. And Mm -hmm. so he has to find something else to draw on and he finds this memory of uh, this song that he used to sing when he was a kid, which is not something Picard likes to think about very much because of his traumatic upbringing. Yeah, um, on the vineyard. On the grass. So he, he kind of finds, as you say, he finds his own new uh, kind of modality there. No, that's a good point. You know, I actually, I think you're right that at the beginning when he drafts them into Starfleet, like that's definitely more for his own comfort than the kids. But (laughs) but when I first watched it, I actually thought that he had found a way to engage with those kids. Like he doesn't do it in a super official way. He's still like, I'm going to talk to you like you're a kid and like come down to your level and like do things on ways that you can understand. And that I thought was a good example of leadership, you know, of like, Figuring out how to work with the people that you have yeah. versus asking them to be different than they are. But Picard is a practice leader. Um, yeah. On the other hand, we have, of course, Troy here. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something I have never seen a good explanation for. This feels like the kind of thing they would at some point figure out in Lower Decks. We'll see. Maybe they'll address it in the third season of Picard. Who knows? Um, but so... Out of universe, we know, unfortunately, the reason why... So you remember in Encounter at Farpoint, the pilot of TNG, Troy's in a uniform. She's got her lieutenant commander pips. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a skirt uniform, but it's still a uniform. And she's an officer. And then in the second episode, suddenly she's in a bodysuit with no rank pips. And she's still... It's like she didn't stop being an officer, but somehow this idea that, well, because you're a therapist and the sexy lady, mm-hmm. we're going we're gonna to make that... You're going to be on duty on the bridge and still wearing whatever you want, I guess. Never a uniform. Yeah. And, again, out of universe, it's ratings, producer bullshit. We know that. Um, but in universe, there's no explanation as to why that is. But in yet, in this episode, it's like, you know, Roe, who has just come onto the ship in this season, um, is like, Counselor Troy has a rank? I believe Counselor Troy is the senior officer on the deck. Counselor Troy? She carries the rank of Lieutenant Commander. I'd, um, I'd appreciate some suggestions. Later on in the show, of course, she, um, there's an episode where a different captain, Jellicoe, is like... Well, by the way, I prefer a certain formality on the bridge. I'd appreciate it if you wore a standard uniform when you're on duty. Of course, sir. And she's like, okay. And then she continues to wear it. And I was like, well, I'm glad we figured that out. But there's no explanation as to how, why that wasn't the case leading up to that point. 
there's nothing in world that to explain that. Yeah, like that yeah. the cards say, you know, I really, I would like you to be sexy for me on the bridge. Like, what, what is <laughs> oh, the... Oh, cringe, <laughs> cringe, so much right there. And she's trying to cover up, but I've seen everything. Anyway, and I get on my bike, I ride off. On the grass. I would think that putting her in um, civilian clothing, such as it is, makes her less intimidating, maybe, or, like, more approachable. It's like, oh, you're just a... You're not an officer. We're not We're not looking at you that way. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I can approach you mm-hmm. and be vulnerable to you because I need to be... I, I kind of see that. It's, it's sexist and weird. Yeah. But it's still... I can see people having that thought, I guess. I can kind of see that, but when you're, when you're in a closed or small community like that, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to not have dual relationships as as it's called normally with a therapist like the only relationship you have with them is as that your therapist right you know like you don't and, and, but sometimes especially if you're living in a small community maybe you both are on the same PTA maybe <laughs> like you see each other at the grocery store or you know like your kids are friends like and that's another kind of relationship on top of the therapeutic one that you have to learn how to navigate and especially in military settings you know like on a closed ship there's no way for like everyone has that dual relationship you know a lot more about each other and especially like the client knows a lot more about the therapist than in a typical setting Right. You know? Because you're in a command structure. You're in a command structure, yeah. yeah. A lot of times, too, like, there's the question of, like, who does a therapist work for? Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's and that there's that whole issue of confidentiality. Like, if, if you tell the therapist something, are they going to tell your commanding officer? Mm. Like, is their ultimate responsibility to the ship and the crew and the military or the school or, like, wherever they are versus you? The individual client. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that answer varies. Like, there's not a hard or fast rule about, like, when when that hierarchy takes precedence over the client or not. With that in mind, thinking about Troy as a civilian, maybe that is a signal to say, like, I don't work for Starfleet. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll cobble together some headcanon here. So, as a result of... Whoever made that decision, let's be optimistic and say it was Troy herself, and mm-hmm. thought, you know what, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna better serve this crew if I present myself this way. Yeah, if I'm outside the hierarchy. Right. So she takes off. She never puts the uniform on, and she presents herself as a civilian, and kind of lets go of all the tangential, non-counselor duties that a, a typical Starfleet officer has. So like O'Brien, transporter officer, and Roe, the the the. Uh, one of the pilots, they both all know all the, like, emergency protocols and, like, oh, these are the things to do. They're an emergency bulkhead closed just beneath that lift. Confinement mode. Right, isolation protocol. I'm, um, not really familiar with that protocol. If the computer senses a hull breach, it automatically closes emergency bulkheads to isolate the breach. Until we can clear those bulkheads, we'll be cut off from the rest of the ship. I recommend we initiate emergency procedure Alpha 2. Bypass computer control and place all systems on manual override. Very well. It's not their primary job, but because they're regularly in uniform and like we're practicing these things in this disaster situation, they know what to do. Yeah. Whereas Troy has let go of all that seemingly and has not kept up on it, has no idea yeah. <laughs> what's going on. And so it, it, it backfires in that way. Um, what I 
really like, what I find aspirational about her little journey in this story, though, is that, you know, it could have it could have been an ep- the episode where Troy learns to be a hard ass and says, mm. "Well, I've been I've been this um, uh, therapist and this uh, kind of soft person, and now I have to decide that some people have to die because space is dangerous, and that's the moral." Or it could have been, um, I'm going to make everyone get into a peace circle and meditate, and that's how we're going to solve the day, or something like that. And instead, it's like, she does access new, kind of more pragmatic um, approaches to things, but not to to the point where she abandons her own instincts. Right. Yeah, I think she eventually, like, she's really struggling with that at first. Like, yeah. when she she just feels completely out of her depth, when it's like, what emergency protocols? What are you talking about? I have no idea. And these two, like, much lower-ranking officers are very clearly like, oh, we know more than you do, and you're in charge. Yeah. Crap. I will say it again. There is no reason to believe that anyone is still alive in engineering. We're wasting time even talking about this. We have to separate the ship now. Um, but, but by the end, she like does kind of find like her own like grounding and rooting in her own instinct and her own judgment. And she's like listening to what they have to say, but ultimately feeling comfortable enough to make the call herself. I believe there are still people alive down there. And I'm going to give them every chance. Assuming they're alive, they'll be hoping there's someone up here who can help them. So we'll help them. Yeah, I mean, that's a really disquieting feeling. I don't know if you ever experienced it, where you're in charge of something and you get it like a, like a question and you're like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm supposed to know everything, right? That's I, I feel that way when you're on the podium or whatever. It's like you have to be the final authority. And you are the final authority when you're in charge in mm-hmm. a structure like that. Um, but confusing the idea of being the final authority with being the ultimate knowledge. Yeah, like, and I've definitely felt that way, like, when I'm in front of a group, and, um, and I don't know something, and it's, I kind of beat myself up for not knowing it, but after a little, after a while of that happening, um, (laughs) I started to be like, why do I have that expectation on myself? Why do I feel like I shouldn't need anyone else's expertise or mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, I don't know, maybe that's a little patriarchal to think that like I should be an island unto myself and not need other people's input or opinions. Again, we come back to this theme about uh, kind of being informed by the culture. I think so. Yeah. I think most things are. Right. You know, I think most things that we think are just like God-given ideas or rights or values are just like, no, someone someone decided that. Yeah. You know, and then we've just accepted it as part of part of the the water that we're in. Mm-hmm. But I, I was also thinking about it if if you take it to the extreme and you think of a leader as someone who doesn't need to listen to anybody else. Like, is that really a leader you want who mm. doesn't listen to anyone else, who doesn't listen to people who know more than they do? It's striking that balance is very difficult where you, the, 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 the fear is always that you, if, if you feel like, if, if you demonstrate to your subordinates that you lack some knowledge, I think, and are seeking uh, the input of people who might know about more about specific things than you, I think that is like a slippery slope 
is the fear is like if you go too far, then you've lost their respect. And I think the degree to which you feel like you're pulling on those reins is really about what the image of leadership is about. Mm -hmm. Doing it in a way where like it's possible. We see Picard do this a lot as a, as a practice leader where they're famously always in the in the lounge, in the conference room, having the discussion. And he's sitting there, and he's at the head of the table, and he's getting input. He's rarely offering specific information. Mm-hmm. He's always like, Worf, what, you know, tell us why you're wrong about how we should shoot people. <laughs> and then, okay, thank you. Uh, Troy, uh, who's feeling things? Okay, thank you. Uh, Data, what's what are we actually doing? You know, And then, in the end, he's like, and this is the decision we're making, but he's he's drawing that out Mm -hmm. and that that is the practice where it's like you're sitting there silently um getting people to give their best to you yeah and that is a very difficult thing to do without like maintaining leadership and 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 sort of dominion without needing to project that kind of control Mm -hmm. it's it's difficult and I, i i i did like seeing troy find her own kind of specific path to something like that, where she, in the end, you know, even Roe, who was very much, <laughs> is very much not like Troy. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're very different characters. Um, ends up being a little humble about it. I was wrong, Counselor. I also really appreciated Troy's response to Roe and when she said, you could have easily been right. Like, I think that kind of, humility and honesty from a leader is also a good value in leadership. You know, like the her, Troy's response, not Troy specifically, but someone else in that position could have just easily said like, yeah, damn straight. You were wrong. Right. You know, but like, well, I, especially it's like I had a win. Like I, I doubted myself and I overcame like yeah. Troy could easily be feeling a lot of like a surge of pride. But, yeah. yeah. But she's like very honest about like, no, like this was really, really hard. And I, as a leader, I kind of had to hide that from you a little bit, like my own Mm -hmm. sense of conflict and insecurity and struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, like you could see her kind of hiding that, like on the bridge when she's just like, we will separate the ship when I decide that it's time and not before. Is that clear, Ensign? Yes, perfectly. And sits down on the captain's chair and she's like, trying to be all cool but like you know she's freaking out yeah yeah um and i think that's a good value in leadership is just like vulnerability and honesty and humility you know and and there are some leaders who don't think that is a good value so again like what are your values and you know how do you live them i'm still in the process i think of dismantling my own inner patriarchy (laughs) but like i have noticed this idea of like oh like my idea of what a leader is doesn't actually align with what I think is valuable about uh-huh. leadership. And I'm kind of in the middle of reworking that. Do you remember the episode Attached, where Picard and Beverly are can hear each other's thoughts? Yeah. And she ends up realizing that... You don't really know, do you? What? I mean, you're acting like you know exactly which way to go, but you're only guessing. Do you do this all the time? No, but there are times when it is necessary for a captain to give the appearance of confidence having that sense of like i know exactly what i'm doing and where to go is comforting to people and that's it's 
pure psychology. <laughs> and she's like, you're so full of shit. <laughs> I can see why he would think it would be comforting to other people. Uh, um, I mean... I wish I had the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> you know, there's also that. There's the lesson, everybody. Come to the <laughs>
All Nog can say is that Jake is being selfish for not gronking the significance of this ship and her mission. Anyway, the Valiant finds her target and tensions mounting among the young crew. Owing to their elite status, we assume, they are able to just barely pull off their plan of engagement, but not before the ship is heavily damaged and many are injured. Adding insult to injury, their plan, though correctly implemented, fails to weaken the Dominion ship as planned, and the Valiant finds itself adrift and vulnerable. Waters is killed, the First Officer is killed, everyone is killed except for Collins and Nog, who rescue Jake from the brig before launching themselves into safety in an escape pod. The Valiant is destroyed, and the trio are luckily rescued by Sisko and the Defiant. In the coda, Nog wrestles with his disappointment in Waters and Red Squad. Um, I hope you like this episode, Elizabeth, because I have to admit I don't. Oh, yeah, I liked the episode. I mean, a lot of it is like a... We'll talk about this like in the segment, but like a lot of this was a bad example of leadership, and it's yeah. just like, but I I liked it as an episode, even if the content was somewhat questionable. But I also think it's good to show question questionable content, so that when you see people behaving that way, you have slight heads up about like, wait a minute, this this is problematic. Yeah, well, help me out here. So let's work backwards from the ending, because the ending I think is the part that most kind of grinds my gears here is that you know so collins uh wants waters and the whole red squad to be remembered as being heroes and um valorized for for their their attitude and and their commitment to duty and etc etc uh despite their the mission failing which it sounds fine right and 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 nog's point to her is he may have been a hero he may even have been a great man but in the end, he was a bad captain. And it's like hedging the bet in that way of like, oh, there's a middle ground here, which, again, on the surface, I get the sentiment, but it's like, to me, there is nothing admirable about what these kids did. Yeah. And they were fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. And not only in and over their heads, but I-, I like the idea that Nog comes up against these people that he, he uh, that were heroes to him, and like he aspired to be in Red Squad back in Homefront, um, and then sees through the propaganda and it's like oh no this sucks i like that as a story but that's not what he comes out with he comes out with this kind of mixed like yeah they were great but flawed Mm. it feels weak to me that wasn't that wasn't where i thought nog ended up um i thought nog was able to see through all the bullshit and say like he was not a great captain so i'm glad that nog did reach that realization Mm -hmm. because he was totally drinking the kool-aid before that aka red squad is a cult (laughs) yeah that's the idea starship lord of the flies yeah Yeah, basically i kind of thought he said that to collins in more of a like i can tell you're still drinking the kool-aid and that you still really like these people and maybe that's the middle ground for collins i see you know like she can't go so far as nog can in seeing that like this was actually a really fucked up experience maybe she will i hope she goes to therapy (laughs) um (laughs) we never got to see waters as anyone other than the captain Mm. You know, like, we didn't actually get to see who he was as a person outside of that role and outside of that persona and identity. And and so I don't think Nog actually has anything to base off whether or not he was a good man. We never we never saw that. What we see of him, the, the man, the young man, the boy, whatever, um, is that he... Well, so he, he decides that the crew 
talking about being home and having feelings about missing being home, which is, I mean, you know, Captain Janeway is seen as a hard ass sometimes. And like when Voyager is stranded in the Delta Quadrant, she doesn't tell people you can't miss home. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. (laughs) So that's his approach to like the psychology of the people under his command. We can't afford to have young cadets thinking about mommy and daddy when they need to be concentrating on their duties. All I did was ask about her home. This ship is special, Jake. This crew is special. And whatever fates guide this universe, they've chosen us to achieve some purpose in this conflict. I know that. Just as surely as I know your presence on this ship is no coincidence. You're here to write the story. Now, we don't expect someone so young and inexperienced to know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. But as a human being, his human response is shut it down. Yeah. No feelings. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, in my opinion, that is not a good value of leadership. And to think that, like, you can only be... I'm going to deny part of your humanity and part of your identity and part of your experience. Like, you can only be on in your work role right yeah. now. Essentially, like, I can't accept your full range of experience because it's inconvenient. Yeah. And there's something there's something tied up with that, with this idea that... And this is one of the things that also really bothers me about the episode is that so in Homefront, when Red Squad is established as a thing, it's established as part of uh, Admiral Layton, the the bad guy in that episode, his um, subterfuge to get Starfleet to more militarize to try to prepare against the Dominion invasion. A group of elite cadets. They never had anything like that when I was at the Academy. Oh, it's pretty new. It's a way of rewarding excellence among the cadets. Are you aware there's a transporter record of Red Squad being returned to the Academy not long after the power outage? That report could cause us a lot of trouble. I'm glad you spotted it. They're fine young men and women. When Leighton talked to me about using them, I thought it was a mistake, but I must admit they performed their mission admirably. Well, then, let's say he is telling the truth that his superior officers ordered him to sabotage the power relays. Starfleet officers have sabotaged the power grid. How can I turn against them? If they have committed treason against the Federation, they will have turned against you. So that's fine in terms of like, here's the bad guy doing a bad thing. And then we find out this is a long time after that. This mm-hmm. is two seasons later. Okay. So two years, just about later. Oh, wow. Okay. And Red Squad's still a thing, somehow. So Starfleet was like, yeah, let's let's continue this, this bullshit for whatever reason. Don't love that to begin with. But also it's like, they didn't in any way correct the, like, the, sh- the shitty way that he was uh, indoctrinating them. Because they still think, we're so amazing and we're the best and we have to be the best all the time. Because I think that attitude has a lot to do with this idea that they can't in any way, like, be weak absolutely. with their feelings, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you have to tell yourself, I'm so much better than everyone else, mm. in order to motivate yourself to do something, like, there's, a, there's something going on there, you know? Like, mm. why do you have to be so much better than everyone else? What is that giving you? What need is that idea meeting? The way you ask that question, Elizabeth, sounds like... <laughs> Uh, something I would be asked by my therapist in in a session. (laughs) And I say that with love, and I say that, like, I'm glad you ask it that way, because what I want to know, 
okay. as you ask that question is, do you have an answer to that question? Because I know you're doing the Socratic thing that you do as a therapist. When you ask the question, you get the client to, to go where they need to go. But do you have an answer in the back of your head? Like, why would someone do this? And what is that answer? I mean, I have the answer for me. Because I, like, 100% sometimes I think very highly of myself. Mm-hmm. And, like... As someone who has not always done that, like, I don't want to completely squash it. Like, I don't want to think that a healthy sense of confidence is somehow unhealthily narcissistic. How can I actually think that I have something of value to contribute is without inflating my ego? Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm honestly still trying to figure that out. Unless I am the best of the best, something bad will happen. Like, there's a threat to me on, on a, on a hmm. level. To me, a lot of that ties to, like, attachment issues. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're a kid, like, does mom only love you when you do what she wants? Hmm. You know, do you only receive love and attention and acceptance when you behave a certain way and not if you behave in other ways? You know, like, does, how do your parents respond to you not getting straight A's? You know, it can be mm-hmm. it can be based in like this really, really young stuff where you get the message, unless you are excelling, you're failing. Mm-hmm. There is something in the episode that is reflective maybe of, of how that, that, that could be a factor for Waters here in that. When I got to the bridge, the captain was in pretty bad shape, but he was lucid and he refused to go to sick bay. We had lost main power and we were adrift, but the Cardassian cruiser was no better off. The captain, he he was amazing. He directed the entire damage control effort with a punctured lung and massive internal injuries. He was a great man. The next day, just before he died, the captain ordered me to take command of the Valiant. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Now, you can just fix our warp drive problems and get on with our mission. And Starfleet knows you're in command of the Valiant. No, the orders were addressed to Captain Ramirez. But since he's dead, the mission's now mine. Make no mistake, I will carry out that mission. Or die trying. Something like that must have happened, obviously. Mm-hmm. Although, I don't know, this this kid has seemed so fucked up to me that I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he was like... He, he the, the getting promoted part was something that Waters just decided happened. Like, I don't know, to be honest with you. But regardless, there's this idea that, like, he created or witnessed this vision of this person who was his leader and felt that the validation that that gave him needed to be lived up to, right? Mm-hmm. He needed to prove that that confidence that was put in him was justified. Yeah. And so he's overextending himself and the people that he's leading in order to um, uh, live up to that attachment that you talked about, that he has this like feeling of like, I'm good enough. I'm a good boy, Captain Ramirez. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I always am because mm-hmm. he keeps like, okay, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to crew the ship by ourselves. Okay. That's stupid, but I guess you've done it. Then they, they managed to actually complete the mission. Thanks to Nog's help yeah. where they, um, they get the scan. They get the, the scan. Great. You guys went over and ab- over and above and beyond. And they still go further because yeah. it's like it's never enough to meet that ego. Yeah. Like this idea of like it never being enough 
never being able to feel safe in that what you're doing is enough. So there's the lesson there about Icarus getting too close to the sun of like, you should you should have quit while you were ahead. Yeah. But the, the idea is if they had, if they had done the scan and then gone back to the Federation, it would have been like, oh, who cares that you disobeyed orders and did this crazy, stupid thing? We're all, we're going to commend you. I mean, we... We've seen that before in Star Trek. You know, we just what did we just do uh, with um, Voyage Home, where it's like yeah. you guys disobeyed orders, but you saved the whales, so good for you. It happens. I get that, but there's this sense of like the actual um, violation of ethics and like leadership style and just making stupid choices and being motivated by bad things wouldn't be. Um, dealt with in any kind of real way, except for the fact that because you went just a little bit too far, it got everybody killed. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have to go that far for them to face the consequences of that nonsense, is my point. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think I would be really curious to know what would have happened in this in the Star Trek universe if they have got if they did go back to Starfleet with the scans. Right. Because if, if that had happened. You know, like, Cisco, when he finds the distress signal, says, like... The Valiant was reported missing over eight months ago. It could be a Dominion ruse to lure us into their territory. Then again, it may be genuine. We have to find out. Right, because if they had made contact with Starfleet... Starfleet would have been, been like, like, come home. Come home, now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's something... Psychologically, when someone says, don't tell anyone... Like, you know, like this this stays in the family, this stays in the church, this stays in the group. Like outsiders shouldn't know about this. Red flag. Red flag. Yeah. Because why Red Squad, red flag. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Red squad. 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 Cult like behavior thrives in a closed system. Mm. So whenever you notice that someone wants to have a closed system and that there are secrets, like that's a red flag. And you should be like, why why are dissenting opinions so dangerous? You see that on the ship too. You know, like you can't feel a certain way. You know, right. like you have to stay on point and be in this role and the rest of who you are is not welcome. Also a red flag. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's amazing because it's like Jake didn't even have the chance. Jake could have been significantly destructive. All he did was like allow this person to express their feelings to him. Right. And it was like that was it. Yeah. And that was seen as such a threat to yeah. the cohesion of the, the crew as as Waters had set it up that it was like you you can't you can't talk to this person anymore. Yeah. Like when psychologically you lose your individual identity and you just kind of adapt into this big group. Like that's that's how the military currently works. Like yeah. you become a soldier versus the son of so and so, the brother and so and so. You know, like you you your your sense of who you are changes, and some. And sometimes there's a reason for that. Sometimes you want to do that. And other times people are doing that to you in order to get you to act in ways you normally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I see that happening with like the whole Red Squad thing of like, oh yeah, and like, this is who we are. I'm not going to think critically about this anymore. Right. Critical thinking is a danger to the, yeah. to the group mentality. Totally. Yeah. 
Ronald D. Moore has always had a more militaristic take on Starfleet than like Gene Roddenberry, for example. And yeah. part of that's also just his own. He he served on a, a, a naval vessel, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, for a little bit before he became a full-time writer. Which is fine. Um, obviously, despite my issues, I don't think he wrote this episode being like, everyone should be like these people. <laughs> like, clearly they're an Aesop, right? Yeah. The other, th- the, the last thing I'll mention um, with respect to this episode is just this um, idea of being attracted to the concept of leadership. Yeah. So I think for someone like Waters and probably the rest, most of the rest of these Red Squad cadets, Nog included, um, being offered this authority without actually having the experience to back it up, I, t- to me that is something that is relatable, especially. Yeah farther I go back in my memory of the younger I was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, being like, I don't really know how to do this, but I really want everyone to see me in charge. <laughs> That's going to feel really good. <laughs> and you make you make a bad judgment where, you know, if you were in charge of putting somebody in charge, say you were making, you would look at someone's resume, for example, mm-hmm. and say, yeah, you're qualified to do this, or I don't think you're ready for this yet. That's... You, you when you're doing it for yourself you're like but I wanna yeah <laughs> you know and what that is and like just the endorphin rush you get from being in charge I think is worth considering because we saw someone who, we saw Troy being like I really don't I didn't ask for this mm-hmm. and then you got these people and she, both of them lack experience in that way but yeah. the the motivation is is profoundly different yeah I think it does come down to motivation like is this scratching your own ego or are you in service of the people around you it's a big that's like depending on what your motivation is is going to inform every decision you make So this week comes from Discovery's 2021 fourth season. All is Possible was written by Alan McElroy and Eric J. Robbins and directed by John Ottman. Burnham and Saru are ordered to attend talks for Navarre to rejoin the Federation. Those talks quickly break down as Vulcan President Tarina demands an exit clause to its charter, justified by the looming danger of the 10C. However, Michael suspects there's more going on and orders Saru to see if he can find out what it is directly from Tarina. Federation President Rillick implies to Michael that she and Saru are going to have to solve this impasse as politics require both heads of state to remain obsequious to their organization's interests. The pair eventually propose a compromise. Michael herself, an adopted daughter of Vulcan and Starfleet captain, will serve as a mediator between Navarre and the Federation until she is no longer needed in the role. During a session with now fully committed ship's counselor Culber, Tilly admits she finds herself questioning the straight line to command she's pursued for all these years. He suggests she lead a group of new cadets on a training mission and asks her to take Tal, who's essentially been adopted by himself and Stamets, along for the experience. On their shuttle, Tilly does her best to try and integrate the cadets and Adira, who've all grown up disparate and isolated, which is a problem for trying to reforge the Cooperative Federation and rebuild Starfleet. The shuttle is hit by an anomaly, forcing a crash landing on a barren L-class moon. 
The group are forced under Tilly's hesitant leadership to abandon the shuttle and make way for a distant ridge to the frozen landscape. Over and over again, the group dynamics break down, with different members having wildly different ideas about how to proceed. During their trek, Tal is trapped by creeping ice, and the other cadets work together to rescue them. Through the struggle, Tilly is able to get the cadets to open up and find common ground, inspiring them to their destination. She also chooses to bait a creature that's been following them in order to give the cadets the opportunity to call the USS Armstrong for escape, which they all manage to do at the last moment. During all of this, Culver also counsels Book over the trauma he's suffering at the loss of his home planet, Quajon. He's forced to accept that he will never be able to fully revive the traditions which had always provided him structure and comfort. Inspired by her experience with the cadets, Tilly accepts an offer to leave the Discovery and teach at the Academy. Yeah, um, we mentioned before, or I mentioned, and I think this episode is a great example of how Discovery... um, tends to put uh, have a psychological psychology forward approach to its storytelling yeah very much at the front um, and uh, the opening captain's log from uh, from Michael Burnham I think is emblematic of that because it's not the kind of thing you would ever hear Picard or Janeway or Cisco or Archer or any of these people right. um, put in their in their official captain's log about the crew is having a hard time and so I'm giving them downtime and I don't know if I'm okay and the guy I'm sleeping with is having a hard time. It's just, it's a lot of... It's a lot, it's, it, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. Yeah, I'm like, I think there's, yeah, there's a personal log you could do. It doesn't have to be the actual captain's log. But it, I think it showcases what Discovery is trying to put, the foot it's trying to put forward. In The Valiant, we were saying how problematic it was to have such a separation between your work identity and your personal identity. Mm-hmm. And how denying one... You know, denying your personhood and your emotional well-being for the sake of being an efficient worker, you know, hashtag capitalism sucks, um, is a problem. Here could be seen as the other extreme. At what point is meshing the two more than someone is comfortable with? Do you like where Burnham ends up as far as that being the official work log? Like... You know, or is it, is there a different middle ground? Yeah. And I think that's different for everybody, but it's interesting. I think it's an interesting question to ask. Like, where's, where is that balance for you? Well, and what we see here with with, with the the plot that Burnham is a a part of in in the episode this week is about overcoming uh, secrecy, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. because of politics, these other forces can't really be direct about what they're feeling and what they need. These are delicate matters. President Tarina and I are not just representing ourselves, but also a whole host of other interests. There must be a way to compromise. All eyes are on us, Captain. Were I to offer a compromise, it would project weakness. Listen to me well. My hands are tied with no other options. It would seem that we are done here. And she has to figure it out for them and be a mediator, right? Yeah. Of course, it's all about Michael Burnham again. <laughs> um, she's the great savior of the of the universe. Um, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Black women are going to save the universe. And that's true. However, it's <laughs> not to say it every single week. That's not. Um, you know, the Discovery crew in this particular point in the show, 
you know, they have all been displaced in time, so they have a very intimate kind of group bond mm-hmm. um, in this universe that has been so kind of um, separated by the by the burn. That's the, the, the thing that's happening. Uh, and so I guess they've become used to this sense of we're going to be really open with each other in a way that is diametrically different from, like, the Valiant, for example. Yeah. And pretty different from any other Starship group we've ever seen. And those values, I guess, carry her through this uh, subterfuge issue between uh, Trina and uh, her her contingency and then Rillick and, and the Federation contingency to, to set up this middle point by the end of the episode. So I, I, I do find that valuable um, as, sort of a, as sort of a lesson. I still think it's a little oversherry for my taste. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oversherry. We're still talking about the captain's log. Yeah. Okay. Or there's the show in general. Both? Yes? Yeah. Yes. Yes, okay. and. Yes, and. It's kind of like what we talked about when we were discussing the difference between, or the, the way in which, like, the Orville and Discovery slash Stranger Worlds and these other New Trek shows have informed each other instead of, because I think Strange New Worlds finds a better balance with this, where it's mm. certainly more uh, 21st century... We have our feelings and we and we put them out there. Relationships matter. We've mm-hmm. talked about with that with Pike than Berman era or uh, Roddenberry era Trek certainly, but it's not quite so. Look at my feelings. Yeah. it's a little more reserved, which I am more comfortable with personally. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. For people individually, I think there's also this idea of discernment. What do you talk about with whom? You know, like, I think people, like, you can overshare your trauma. Like, you meet someone for the first time, and you tell them every terrible thing that's happened to you, you know, and you kind of, like, rip open the Band-Aid and be like, here is my darkest, innest thing, I've just met you, and, like, we haven't established that relationship, and it's just, like, it's, like, trauma dumping, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's not great. Some people will say, like, but I'm just showing up as my full, authentic self. I'm like, yeah? But, like, you're not being very discerning about who to share that with. Whereas, like, do you establish that relationship first? Mm-hmm. When you're at work, do you show up as a certain version of yourself? Yeah. Versus, and, you know, and then you take those feelings and then you go to therapy and then you're like, blah, all these things. Like, like where do you place these different parts of yourself? Do you have to be everything to everyone all the time? I think that kind of relational discernment about what what you show of yourself to whom and in what context mm-hmm. really matters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're right and that's one of the things I think that makes me uncomfortable is this idea that you are supposed to be professionals mm. <laughs> like right okay at least when you're on duty I appreciate that they had that they show all their counseling sessions I mean we saw that on TNG it's like yeah. when you're in the in that intimate space absolutely share maybe less of it in the captain's log. That's all I'll say. <laughs> we can move on from that. One of the reasons I chose this episode for the topic this week is that I do kind of see it as a hybrid between our TNG and DSI episodes. I agree, yeah. yeah. Like, in TNG, I, I personally see a lot of good examples of leadership, both intentional and, like, thrust upon you, accidental. And then... In the DS9 episode, it's a lot of problematic, like, red flag culty behavior. I was like, okay, if a leader's doing that, 
what what is their actual intention? What are right. they trying to do? Is this healthy? Is this helpful? And I kind of see both happening. Mm. I don't see the manipulation or like the red flags so much in the Discovery episode, but it does ride the edge of sometimes things go well, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Specifically, we're talking about with Tilly. With Tilly, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like when they're crashing, Sasha says, I'm a trained pilot, I can help! I think a good leadership value is trusting the people on your team. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what's your expertise? What do you bring to the table? Can I still be secure in my own leadership knowing that you're better at something than me? Mm -hmm. You know? But she says, oh, Sasha, sit down. That's an order. Part of that might just be, like, trying to protect her. I think so. Yeah. Like, I, I do understand that it was probably, like, in the heat of the moment. But, like, what if Sasha had been able to pilot? Like, would right. they have crashed as hard? And then after the crash, when Garev and Haral are fighting, mm -hmm. like at first, I think she does a really good job of just trying to like change what's happening. Like, no one is going anywhere alone. Whatever we do from now on, we are doing it together. He's much calmer than the two of them at right. first, but it doesn't change them enough. And then she starts to get worked up. Stop it, all of you. Listen, you know, I'm usually a very upbeat person, Bubbly, some would say, but right now I have one job. It's keeping all of you alive. So we're staying together. And like to me, that's a really interesting example of like what co-regulation does and like how you can be affected by the way other people are feeling around you and how hard it is to kind of press against that and like change the people around you. R remind us what co-regulation is. Um, it's the idea about how nervous systems um, adapt to each other, essentially. Right. Oh, yeah. the, 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 like, the response types. Flight, fright, fright, flight, fright, fright, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> oh, good job, good job. Um, yeah, I mean, the idea, <laughs> the idea is that if, if you are freaking out, but you're with someone who's calm, if that other person stays calm, you will eventually calm down. Mm -hmm. Versus if both of you just start yelling at each other, it's just, it, you're, you're both throwing gasoline on the fire. He wanted to hide in a cave. That's what we're trained to do. Just admit it. Seek shelter. You only look out for yourself. Hey, enough. The burn is in the past, all right? You gotta decide now. Are you gonna work together as a crew or not? You wanna meet the emotional, wherever, whatever the emotional meter is, right? You feel as though if you're not at that same this heightened point you're not you're just gonna get trampled i mean that, yeah. that's how i feel is like if i don't stand up then i'm just that energy is gonna blow me over totally. and i don't want to be blown over totally totally yeah and that's that's how most like fights work you know <laughs> when i was 10 an emerald chain raiding party commandeered my family's food replicators because they could i watched my grandmother starve to death I had to bury the body because my parents are too weak from giving me their food. Now you expect me to work with him? I hear you. Have you ever asked him about his history with the chain? There is common ground here, but you will never find it unless you talk to each other. Uh, his father was an activist. He drafted the Emancipation Bill for the Enslaved, which was part of the armistice that the Emerald Chain eventually proposed to the Federation. He died a political prisoner before he could see any of that happen. It's kind of like blowing into, like, 
uh, exhaling into a, a bag instead of through a straw. Mm. That's yeah. kind of how it feels. Where the pressure just immediately uh, eva- evaporates. And mm-hmm. so you have to, it takes more energy to sustain that level for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tire myself out more, much more quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, not, I'm not feeding it to you. Right. Essentially. Nervous systems try to find equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And if you both let both of those water levels rise, like you're both just going to start yelling at each other, essentially. But if one person is very intentionally just trying to keep that water level down, yours is going to come down too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Um, let's talk more about Tilly. Okay. So I'm curious what your take is on what you think was being conveyed about both the the way the character was written and also Mary Wiseman's performance. So I, I'll say this up front, which is that I do think season four Tilly can handle this situation way better than like season one Tilly when we first mm, met her. Like yeah, yeah. obviously that growth has happened where she can take this on, and I think she would have completely collapsed in the when they first time we met her, which is good. I, mean, I like to see that that growth in the, yeah. in the character. Um, but there is a lot of nervous energy mm-hmm. in the way she does this, and I'm trying to figure out what is being said about leadership in this context. What do you think? Hmm. Well, to me, I think, again, like, this is a good middle ground between the two episodes where, like, she's right on the edge of being able to do this well, you know? And kind of like she says to Adira right before, like, all the shit hits the fan. Yeah, I think actually for this exercise, it's more useful for you to think of yourself as another cadet. You still have a lot to learn. Like, she's saying that to Adira, but she actually has a lot to learn. Uh Uh-huh. So I, I, I think of that as like an interesting like foreshadow projection moment, in my own opinion. Um, I see. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah cause I think she learns a lot from this experience, and sometimes she doesn't, she doesn't do it super well at first. Sometimes she's not successful. We want to have this idea that we're going to be perfect the very first time we ever do anything, and that the first time we, we step into a leadership position, we're going to know exactly what to do. There's always a learning curve. Yeah. You always show up and you're like, that did not, I don't, nope, I have a lot to learn. <laughs> okay. And I, I, that's what I think this episode is demonstrating. Just that awkward middle ground of like, you're learning how to do something. She begins the episode by questioning her straight line path to command that's been so disrupted by the discovery being launched into the future and all of that. Yeah. Um, and then where she ends up is in a whole different kind of leadership where she's asked to, to teach at the Academy, which yeah. of course the Academy is this, now this they're remaking it for the first time here because Starfleet is, is almost gone. <laughs> Be, yeah, being a teacher as, as a kind of leadership that she hadn't considered as being uh, suited to her particular psychology or mm-hmm. skill set. You know, when Discovery first arrived, no one here trusted you. It was the way you carried yourselves, like you grew up in a world that believes anything is possible. Quite frankly, it, it stung. And it's exactly what this new generation of cadets needs as the Federation rebuilds. I never could figure out how my mother became a diplomat. No compromise. She had everything planned out. She had my whole life planned out. So I always thought that I was doing this for me. But then when I got the pips, all of a sudden, I realized, like, my mom is 900 years in the past. She's never going to see me wear them. 
And I started wondering if this is what I really wanted or if I just really wanted to be seen. But I think it could be a useful perspective for a teacher. I don't necessarily like the idea that, well, teaching is a softer form of leadership than, mm. than starship captaining. It's a little it's macho-y, less, but... It, it's macho-y. I think, I think most people would say it's a little less flashy. Like, yes. culturally, we don't yes. value teaching as much as we do this more... Politics, yeah. military, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's, a, again, cultural value. We think it's a given. Is it? Mm-hmm. Someone shows that. And the teachers are essential, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, like, that kind of character arc surprised me. I didn't quite get the sense before this season that she was really dissatisfied in her um, career path. Mm -hmm. But she at least had the wherewithal to realize that she was kind of living on autopilot and really unhappy. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, I think, realize that the life they're living might have been something they used to want, but they don't want it anymore. And do they have the courage to actually change their course or do they just stick with it? No, it's admirable. And, you know, contrasting her with Troy, for example. So Troy comes out of the experience in disaster and later Mm. on in TNG, she like wants to become a bridge officer and Mm. become a full commander and goes through this whole thing. Like inspired by the experience in disaster, she's like, I want to be more Starfleet and all this, right? Yeah, is it like she wants to be more prepared in case that happens Yeah, time? essentially, she's, she's like... Well, when that happened, I was overwhelmed. But then when it was over, I realized that a part of me missed it. The experience of being in command. I felt like I was exploring a whole new side of myself. Tilly goes through this experience where by the end of the shuttle mission, she's ready to sacrifice her life if need be mm-hmm. for these kids. Clearly demonstrating like she's ready for this captain's chair if she's going to keep going for it, but decides, I'd, I think I'm better suited to this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of courage that I, I like yeah. that, that contrast. Yeah, Uniting the three sort of subplots in this episode is, I think, this idea of getting over trauma, which I do want to talk about a little bit, because in the uh, Burnham-Saru story, you have the trauma of what the burn did between and what the Federation apparently had become mm-hmm. in the 29th century, or whatever it is, um, becoming too distant from its member worlds to rec- adequately address and do their needs. And so that means that the Vulcans and Romulans are need an exit clause. I must remind you that before the burn, Navarre and other worlds felt the Federation had grown so disconnected from its members that it was unable to consider their individual needs. Trust was eroded. So that trauma they need to get over. Uh, Book, obviously, his trauma of... It'll never work. It won't be the same. Of course not. It's loss. It's devastating. Profound. And you won't heal the way you would have before. And then um, with Tilly's mission, uh, it's it's most apparent with um, uh, the the Orion um, slave <laughs> uh, history, and like yeah. they're both both characters are dealing with that like getting over part. One is like getting over being the victim, and the other one's getting over being seen as the asshole yeah. because of his race. And it's like yeah, there's there's empathy of both sides there, and they the only way forward is through i think in all those subplots there's you know like these two immovable points 
mm-hmm. that people are saying it can only be this or this, like this like binary option is being presented and like neither people can budge. And so they think nothing else is possible. But psychologically, there's something really powerful about what else is possible if both of these things are true. That's how you resolve conflict of two immovable points, essentially. It's what's this other thing that's possible between these two points? And, and sometimes, what's the common ground here? Yeah. What am I not seeing? Yeah, it's kind of three-dimensional thinking, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that when you have... You, you might be immovable objects across a certain plane, mm. but you could maybe move this way or this way, yeah. right? And find something that is... Uh, you, 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 can't, you are movable in other dimensions if you consider them. I like that. I like that. So something that all three of these episodes touched on was this idea of Mm self-sacrifice. You know, and I found that really interesting that all three episodes valued self-sacrifice by a leader as an admirable value. You know, like Data sacrifices himself to get him and Riker through the port in the Valiant, like the lack of self-sacrifice was actually seen as a problem. Right. You know? Right. And then Tilly in the Discovery, like was willing to sacrifice herself to save the cadets. And I know that Starfleet kind of exists in this weird, we're scientists, but we're also this military structure, mm-hmm. kind of strange hybrid. Liminal space. Yeah. yeah liminal space. Um, so I wonder how much of that self-sacrifice idea is tied to the military, like, ancestry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thinking of it. I don't know if self-sacrifice is, like, a universal quality of leadership. Like, should, should leaders be willing to do that? Now that I say it out loud, yes, I think if that <laughs> comes down to it. But, like, there's so... Well, let's, let's look at disaster as an example, like... It's not exactly self-sacrifice, but it is in a way where Rose's solution to do the saucer separation would have worked in that it would have, like, the, the outcome was predictable. If they had done what she suggested and separated the ship, everyone in the saucer section would have survived and people in the drive section would have been sacrificed. Yeah. But the the risk was by not doing that, everybody could have died or everybody who was still alive as would happen in the episode survived. Yeah. So the sacrifice in that case that Troy's sort of making is um I'm willing to sacrifice myself instead versus before I would will be willing to sacrifice other people. Well no. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Because that that's the thing is that Troy is no matter what happens, either either everybody what Troy decides is that either everybody dies or nobody dies. Again, uh, we mentioned this, like she could have gone that route of being like, I'm going to go as far against type as I can, mm-hmm. be very pragmatic and cold and say, this goes against my instinct, but I think because I'm inexperienced as a leader, I have to do this thing, which is very uncomfortable because that's what a leader would do. Mm, yeah, right? yeah. And do the, the, the sacrifice thing, the hard choice, the, the, the military choice and, and cull the weak from the strong, right? Ooh, okay. And she doesn't do that, to her credit. Mm-hmm. And probably Picard would also not have done that. She does prepare to do it. 
she does tell O'Brien to like get right into the saucer separation until uh, if like at some point I as feel like backup. I need to, as a backup. To, to your point, there's a little bit of that like dismantling of that kind of cultural value about about sacrifice and what where is it really coming from? Is it is it is it always a noble act? Yeah. Right. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's just well, that's we sacrifice. That is hard choices. That is what leadership is. That is what good politics is. That is what good military is. And that's just sort of an automatic response that we have as opposed to a considered position. Yeah. To me, it's the difference between am I trying to adapt to these external circumstances or identities or like if I'm a leader, therefore I should be X. Right. Or is it internally based? Like Mm -hmm. this is what I think is best and I'm going to do this based on my own values and convictions. So what we see here are people thrust into leadership positions, or in the Valiant's case, thrusting themselves into leadership positions for which they are probably not suited, or at least haven't been prepared. Yeah. Right? And they have to sort of make decisions for for which they don't have a script the way captains and admirals do. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's something kind of revealing in that, because... We, we, what we can say is that what we're seeing played out in front of us in these kind of dysregulated characters is what's happening yeah. every time conflict arises in leadership situations. It's just that practice leaders don't let you see it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think about Troy sitting down on the bridge, you know, after having argued with Ensign Rowe. Mm-hmm. And, like, she's trying to show confidence and poise and like nothing is rattling her but you know she's like fucking rattled right you know she's rattled and then you see of course waters popping pills yeah right and to deal with his lack of experience and in, in, in making these kinds of decisions and then we see tilly who doesn't have the option of a moment to herself in yeah. that shuttle for a bit loses control Mm -hmm. and is not actually being as good a leader as she can be because she doesn't have the, the time to like the other characters do to like be off somewhere and have some sort of coping mechanism or the experience of being a leader to keep that all contained. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and has spoken. We have the forward-facing presentation that we try to show other people, and we try to hide what's going on like backstage, to mm-hmm. keep going with the theater metaphor. But with these unexperienced leaders, you see everything. Right. And It's a, it's a rehearsal. <laughs> it's a rehearsal. I like that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to note that like what we see in these inexperienced leaders, a lot of it is still happening with the experienced leaders. They just hide it better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how does that help us then in our own leadership lives, <laughs> whether as leaders or followers, to, to, to know that? I, I don't know. I do find it... People have different re- responses, I think, to, to these sorts of things. Do you, do you see someone who's in charge of you, for example, if you, if you are being led by a, in your work or in your country <laughs> or in your, your group, whatever, um, and you consider the full humanity of the person leading you and imagine what they might be going through that you're not necessarily seeing. Does that help you receive and interact with their leadership style or does it inhibit you? I really think it depends on the person. Like I I think people who are not super comfortable 
with their own emotional vulnerability will not respect seeing that in someone else. Yeah. You know, but someone who does value, you know, vulnerability and honesty and humility, seeing that in the leader could be seen as like, oh, like that lets me trust you more. Yeah. You know, like that's that's actually how I try to approach whenever I'm in front of a group of people. Like I try to I try not to put on this air of like I know everything. Um, like I try to appear like confident, but I also try to like listen to what other people say. I try not to take other people's questions or like moments when I realize I actually didn't know something as a reason why I shouldn't be a leader. Yeah, you know, because like that's because the fact that it might be so disintegrating and so dangerous. If your own confidence and sense of leadership is so fragile that you can't take any kind of dissent, hmm. that's Red Squad. Right. That's Waters. Right. Look how fragile that had to be. Like, look at how much wasn't allowed to come near it. Captain, are you all right? Yes, why? I heard you were on the bridge during Midwatch again last night. You haven't been getting much sleep lately, sir. Thank you for your concern, Karen. But I'm, I'm fine, really. Yes, sir. I'm sorry I even brought it up. That's all right. There's something reassuring about coming across as confident. I'm not saying, like, you should, like, be really insecure in front of people who, like, need you to, need to be reassured of your own, like, you got them. The, the test of leadership in these cases is, is like the, the upping of, of the stakes, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's encouraging to see, like I said, that Troy doesn't fully abandon her, um, her, her, her mode of, mm. of uh, not only leadership, but just sort of emotional regulation and decision making, just because the stakes are changed from the emotional well-being of a single patient in, in your, in your, um, in your in your office to yeah. the lives of the entire crew and, and families aboard that she still maintains despite the pressure and the fact that she she's cracking a little bit yeah right she still is like i'm i have to be myself i can't be some other idea of what i think a leader has to be in this case i believe there are still people alive down there and i'm going to give them every chance i remind you counselor that power coupling could overheat at any moment by not separating the ship now, you could be responsible for all our deaths. Thank you, Ensign. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's an interesting challenge for her as well. Like, when, when you're working individually with somebody, so much of what you're trying to do is, like, show empathy and, like, mm-hmm. show that, like, no, I get what you're saying. And, like, there's a lot of mirroring involved and a lot of trying to get on their wavelength. And, and the fact that she can't do that with Ensign Rowe, I think, is actually a very particular challenge. It's like, she actually has to resist the urge to be like, I get what you're saying. You know, like, she can't empathize with Rowe. Having to maintain that very hard stance of, like, I'm not going to mirror you in this instance. Like, I, I wonder how hard that was for her as a character. I think it seems to me like Troy knew that if she gave Rowe an inch, yeah, Rowe would take a take a mile, right? That's that's the phrase. Yeah. I think. Um, Give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> well, and that would have been disastrous. Disastrous in the episode. Um, uh, because Ro was so completely certain that she was right. That she would have just gone with it and that would have been the decision. And that's Ro's leadership style, <laughs> such as it is, right? Yeah. 
Um, and you, Troy you, recognized that danger, I think, as a, as a counselor. I think that's yeah. something that she very, very much played into her skill set of like saying, like, I need to not validate this at all yeah. until after the danger's over. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was really skillful of her. And again, a good, a good example of what, what makes good leadership is it, does a good leader think they're absolutely right? Maybe not, but sometimes you have to pretend like you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With certain people. There's pageantry, you know, like we, like, yeah, there's yeah. pageantry in so many things. Well, the, the other person I, I didn't, we didn't talk about as much as I would have liked was Nog. Um, mm. And what Nog learns about about leadership in these different examples because he's had Cisco and O'Brien and his dad and other people like in his life being good good leaders and then he comes up with he he, he comes in a situation where he meet, like fulfills his expectations about what not only being led is like but being allowed to be a leader is like yeah chief engineer chief engineer what he yeah. always wanted way ahead of schedule yeah which is the case with all of these doesn't kids. that feel good it feels so good and at first, it's so validating to, like, step into the role that you're not ready for. That's probably the hardest part is, like, realizing that your aspiration comes with this <laughs> this really dark undercurrent. What do you think I should say? That it was a good ship with a good crew that made a mistake. Let ourselves blindly follow Captain Waters. He led us over a cliff. I had an old mentor who said, you know, if if all of us waited until we were completely ready to do something, none of us would have learned how to walk. said people who are practice leaders essentially have just had the opportunity to read the script that they either wrote for themselves or was written for them often enough that they have like a series of things to draw upon yeah um which creates the theater of competency and calm and all of those things which we tend to value in the leaders um that we look up to and if you don't have those things, it doesn't mean you're going to do things poorly. It's just going to be a little messy. Yeah, like you you need to practice, you need to rehearse, you know. And just because some people have had more experience in rehearsal than you doesn't mean you eventually won't also get there. But allow the imperfect phase of it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, thank you again to Wellington for your idea. Thank um, you. And for your support and the support of all our patrons and listeners. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about substance abuse we for are. a specific reason. Uh, I just finished my substance abuse class in my psychology program. So it's fresh, and we are going to, yeah, look at drugs and addiction in Star Trek. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Maybe maybe we'll maybe we'll take that to a, a specific place. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, it'll, I know we will be uh, not in the same location when we record next, so it's always been a pleasure to get to hang out with you in person and yeah. record these in person. And, yeah, I look forward to the next time. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, leave uh, reviews, comments. All those things are very helpful in the algorithm. We're hoping to grow the channel um, and get as many Star Trek fans and other sci-fi nerds and uh, students of psychology, etc., etc., human beings um, involved in the show. So. And aliens. Don't forget the aliens. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. we don't need to talk about <laughs> anyway, I will uh, see you next week, Elizabeth. See you next week. Can I quit time? Yes, of course. There we go. <laughs> I need one. Please. You need one? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Ha, ha, ha.